This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. My name is Alan Katz. And mine is Gil Adler. Today, our guest is a guy named Peter Iliff. Um Peter Iliff is a huge, huge writer. Among his credits are, oh God, Varsity Blues, um, Point Break, Patriot Games. We first encountered Peter back when we were doing Tales from the Crypt, Gil and I. Uh, when we took over Tales from the Crypt, our executive producers saw Crypt, uh, among other things, as a way to try out untested first-time directors. In a lot of cases, well, in some cases they were favors to friends, but in some cases they were writers who wanted to direct. And this was a way for these young writers to to direct without them hurting anybody, like, you know, a studio picture. They could only hurt an episode of Tales from the Crypt. They uh, could only hurt, they only could hurt you and me. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurt. Uh, so we shepherded a number of first time directors through their paces for the first time. We, we kind of broke their scary as the, uh, Crypt Keeper would, 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 would say, uh, Gil, you were, you especially, you worked with them. I mean, my responsibility was, was the writing side, but you really held a lot of first time directors hands. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But Peter, you know, he knew what he, he knew how to write. He knew what, what he was writing and, and. You know, like when I first directed, you 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 sort of know the script, and but you're not quite sure how to what's the angle, how to capture the yeah. emotional integrity of what that scene is about, and so that was really what we talked mainly about. And from doing Tales from the Crypt, after that, we became pretty pretty good friends and chums, and we hung out a little bit, and we got to know each other, and then we lost track of each other for a number of years, and then we would re re-instigate the relationship and you know i've known peter for a really long time and we've we've talked a lot about a lot a lot of things along the way it's funny i i i i didn't really as i said i i didn't really meet peter back then my experience with him was he was he was a director a writer director who was being imposed upon us and uh you know peter was a big big writer and uh, i certainly was not and, and anything that i had to say about his script was absolutely Useless. Hey, them them's just the politics of of reality. But it's funny. I, I and I've never until until this interview, which you're all about to hear, I never met the man. And uh, having finally met him after almost thirty years, I really liked him a lot. I think this will I think this will be a very helpful uh, interview for people to hear, especially if they're writers or young writers trying to oh, figure yeah. out how to how to move how to manipulate their careers and how to move in the industry i think how to get from point a to point b yeah. yeah uh yeah yeah it's you know our, the last episode ed, ed ed tapia ed talked a lot about how to how how to crack this nut how to climb this mountain and get into this business there you really have to think outside the box and that's exactly what really the path that peter took as well uh yeah. hey Let's let Peter speak for himself. Enjoy. It's funny how perspective changes as one uh, accumulates mileage. It's true, isn't it? You know, and it's uh, one of the nice about getting older, you know, and maybe being a writer is I get to kind of have my mornings be my thing, you know, that's kind of going out. You know, I can go to the beach and ride my bike. And, and the gym is like a kind of a bro out thing because writers you know, we isolate, don't we, you know, and we kind of need to have silly friends who we just talk crap with. And I, I find that's necessary your, for mental health. When's your prime time writing? You know, I like to get two sessions in a day. I like to do um, after lunch until about, hmm. you know, five-ish. And then the dogs look at me like time for the walkie walk, go to the mm -hmm. park. There's a park across the street. Mm -hmm. throw them. And then, you know, I've been married to Ruth Ann 33 years. You know, I'm not going out at night a lot. I, I love to write after dinner. And huh. the phones don't ring. There's no business. And you can really get some stuff done. So, you know, often days I'm kind of doing two sets of writing periods. And then, uh, you know, there's certain days you can't. You got to go do stuff, you know. And, I'm uh, I'm very big on first thing in the morning. I, I, 
I got I love usually I'm 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 sitting at at the desk desk by six o'clock and and uh, little coffee a little cannabis I'm I'm flowing. Yeah. Are I'm, you a gummy man or are you uh you got it rolled up? Oh no I've I've got uh I've got two two kids who are college I I uh and and we absolutely share a product. I, I frankly I would rather if my kids stopped drinking and only and only smoke cannabis I'd be a very happy person. <laughs> Seriously, I think my wife is out now. Uh, she's discovered gummies for sleep. And, oh uh, you know, well, I, I I've had to be sober for eighteen years. I was a very bad man. I, I at the time, height of my career, I thought cocaine would be a really great idea. Oh well, uh, hey, and so yeah, you know, yeah. uh, I had to fix that little issue. And, are, uh, are are you completely sober now? Yeah, you know, and it's it's uh it's kind of if you're gonna do. I'm, I'm a I'm a proud member of L.A. sobriety. You know, cool, and, cool, uh, good. Good and for you. I had to because I just got out of control. And, and you uh, and you have been for quite a while, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you know, my sobriety date is September 15th, 04. And yeah. uh, I had a sobriety date in 03 and I had one in 02 and I couldn't make them stick, you know. <laughs> hey, but, it's, uh, it hard. It, it is. But it, it's all it's all part of a the journey we're on. Hopefully, if the personal growth is a big part of it. It yeah. makes the journey so much more worthwhile, productive, and oh, for one of a better word, satisfying. Oh, of course. Everything I have, I go to sobriety. But think about it, how, you know, handsome we all were and doing all these cool things, you know, making these cool TV shows and getting invited to the Chateau Marmont to some actress's party and, you know, drinking too much maybe and getting handed something I normally wouldn't say yes to. Yeah. But you'd had a few drinks and your decision making is kind of bad. And what a time we all had. You know, and uh, frankly, we're still having, but I think, uh, and a little bit more moderation. <laughs> do you do you ever get nostalgic for for those particular patches of of your misspent youth? Oh no, man! You know, because uh, it was you know, it, there it was the right time to be to misbehave. I suppose being young, you know, I um I came from nothing. You know, I uh, never had money. My father died when I was eight. And, Where did you uh, come mom, from? Where did you I come came from? from exactly? Marin County, you know, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, my mom was lovely and we had enough. But, you know, it was just, you know, back then college was the University of California was cheap, you know. Which and one did you go to? I went to Berkeley and to, uh, but I graduated UC Santa Barbara. Oh, and, uh, you know, two very times, good, very right? good You're schools. Living on the beach. Both my kids went to the UC, so yeah, yeah. But so it was interesting. Then all through my, you know, I come to LA not knowing a soul, wanting to be a screenwriter, but I hadn't even written a screenplay yet. I got no money. I'm I'm driving trucks, being a gopher for Alan Landsberg Productions, which <laughs> did that show. You might remember that's incredible. Sure, oh, sure, of course. You know, and it was a top ten show, like Kathy Lee and John Davidson and Fran Tarkenton. Remember being out in the Gower Studios lot, you know, cutting hard left and Fran Tarkenton would throw a perfect pass to be right here. But um, we had no money. You know, I, I'm, you know, I really had to all the deliveries. I had to eat food out of compact video. Their their kitchen. I had to. Can go I go back a couple of steps? What? Can I go back a couple of steps with you? Please. What was the first movie you remember seeing? Uh huh. I will just say my my most memorable experience was my father took me the day that Life magazine published the cover was Goldfinger, and it was uh, a I shot remember, of I guess yeah. you know uh, I forget the the actresses you know painted in gold, yeah. and, I, and he was a hardworking corporate guy, and he said it was Sunday so let's let's go, and he he took his little boy I must have been six or seven. And I remember it ended, and it was you know it was great. It was Sean Connery it was awesome. He, he took you at six years old to see Goldfinger, and uh, and then he goes, "You want to see it again?" And we saw it again. We stayed for the oh, next wow. show. You had a and, great dad. Uh, what, what a great know, dad. and I. It's a, what a coincidence. I've written a few action films in my life. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, it 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 made a real impression in in a lot of different ways. It, it yeah. I mean, Clearly, the experience, the it, it imprinted upon you. Your companionship there in the movie theater imprinted upon you. 
I, I suddenly I understand your entire herb in a whole different light. <laughs> I remember, um, I think it might have been fifth grade or so. Uh, I graduated from reading Tom Swift and the Happy Hollister novel series that my mother had gotten for me to the Ian Fleming novels. Sure, sure. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of violence and, and, and graphic sex, but they were pretty sexy. And I remember going to see Uncle Bob and he took, you know, the, my Ian Fleming book away from me. And I was reading The Godfather and the the scene of yeah, Sonny the Godfather, the know, wedding, the gal against the door, oh, and he took talking. that away from me, and yeah, yeah, and it was interesting how um, the uh, you know as a would be writer, you're reading a lot, and I started, I guess I started reading pop culture a little early, and it got me in trouble, hmm. a lot of people, and uh, <laughs> but uh, kids find this stuff. I guess now the kids find internet porn. We found Ian Fleming novels, and that was uh, what we could do. What was the movie that? All right, so so you saw you you understood something from Goldfinger, but something propelled you to come here and try to get into this madness. Was there a particular movie that you know? That... I was just amazed. Uh, particular movies. Um, I think one of the ones that really influenced me was was frankly Jaws. Hmm. You know, and sitting in a theater with. My high school girlfriend and you know like you know just kind of squeezing each other so tight because we were so <laughs> caught up and so scared dun, 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 dun. and then this idea that light traveling through a strip of celluloid projected on a wall could elicit these emotions started to kind of take and uh and then you'd see uh, one of my favorite films if you ask me you know is is Frankly, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, oh, oh. I was just amazed by Same this pain. film. Oh. Well, I'm glad you agree. You know, um, everything, everything I know kind of flowed from that movie. Uh, yeah. Adventures in the Screen Trade was so. Oh, wow. my God. Okay. Yeah, a great book. Great book. And reading the screenplay, that's yeah. art. That is, it is, well, you know, just art. Uh, I mean, yeah, we could go on about talking about We'll see, they'll have to drool all over the place. You know, you, you know, what's, you know what's kind of funny about Goldman is I started out in New York in theater and I read Goldman's book about theater. Hmm. And I remember the, there's one one, par one chapter called The Muscle where he talks about there's always in, in a theater, there's always somebody who has the power, who has the muscle to do it, whether it's David Merrick or Hal Prince or whatever. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And then when I started getting involved with film and television, came to L.A., someone said to me about the book about motion pictures. And I said, oh, yeah, who wrote that? And I said, Goldman. I was like, Goldman? Whoa, I can't, I can't wouldn't wait to get that book. <laughs> I got to meet, I got to spend a night in William Goldman's, they call it the James Bond pad in uh, New York City. Hmm. I was coming back from doing a movie in Puerto Rico, um, that Stephen Hopkins, my dear buddy, was had directed Under Suspicion, Gene like Hackman, Stephen. Morgan Freeman. And we're coming into New York and we're going to go. He's going to take me to see his buddy because uh, Goldman had written um, uh, that movie Hawkins did about lions, the ghost in the darkness. Yeah. And so we I remember at the airport, they lost our luggage and um, it was kind of a bummer. But, oh, we'll forget it. We're going to Goldman's house. And sure enough, it's this penthouse pad oh like the coolest part of manhattan and there were always all these cool kind of women and and, and exciting men there you know very new like york salon. He, he gave me his cashmere sweater to wear because i was cold and i forgot <laughs> forgot to give it to him back <laughs> i want to wear this freaking sweater and and get the mojo so i can be a good writer sure, and sure. uh and Hopkins said, no, you got to mail that back. No, I, I, we had a big fight. I finally had to mail back the William Goldman sweater. And I did. But I'd be, I would have had a much better career if I just kept the damn sweater. I'm sure of it. <laughs> and somewhere there, there, there'd be a screenplay moldering in an attic. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how it works with, with us? Uh, Isn't it funny that... You know, all the you know, we have our heroes, and I'm a big sports fan. But I mean, to meet Go William Goldman, that was that was like the holy grail. Yeah. It's funny, you know, cool, when, you know, when we did Tales from the Crypt, uh, we got to work with the most amazing people. Yes, you, know, you did. Yeah. Kirk Douglas and, and, and Michael J. Fox and Tom Hanks. 
But the person who we worked with, who we cast, who to me was the most exciting person, I, I got, I got to, I got to work with the God and put words in God's mouth. It was Buck Henry. Oh yeah, Buck Henry. Getting to Buck Henry. Getting to work with Buck Henry was a massive thrill. Massive. Yeah. He yeah. was cool, wasn't he? Yeah, I never I got to meet Buck. Man. You know, he, he wrote the Graduate Man. <laughs> and, and and he tackled catch 22 yeah i was gonna bring that up yeah what yeah, a catch 22 what, what a, a weird that must have been when when i just a, you know when i read the book I, you know god i i'm in a sense i've always been a screenwriter even when i was a little kid something in me was always ready for this and i even when i read that book i, I had something in me said how would it's an amazing movie how would you do it it's too it's so big and yet he he kind of wrestled it to the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, it was amazing how horrifying it could be. You know, the sun, the, these these torn up airmen. You know, in, in the and in the, with their intestines hanging out in the the bomber plane. Snowden. Yeah, the, the absurdist comedy. You know, it was a really a fusion. It's hard to bring those two genres together, as we all know. Mm, no, it, it's a it's a masterpiece because of the juxtaposition yeah. of. Of the horror and the comedy and and yeah wow um, I I I did a, I wrote and directed a film called Rites of Passage which tried to fuse these two genres and I failed I mean it is really hard you know to like fuse the horror and the thriller and a dark humor and um, why do you think uh, you failed? Uh, you know sometimes failure makes you really respect those <laughs> truly but but uh, okay I mean yeah uh, uh, cool hey, it off you know? we know having, about that. <laughs> why why do you think you failed at it what what i think that um as a you know and to talk directing you know a, a first-time director is probably best advised to stick to a genre that's mm. kind of pure and one you really feel comfortable in mm -hmm. and um you know i would be more comfortable doing straight thriller you know you know you know three days of the condor you know just that kind of thing and and uh i was convinced to put in dark humor and i just that is not my thing as a rule. You know, I mean, I think I'm funny, but it's not how I write. I mean, there's always humor in our writing, but I found that by trying to fuse genres as a new director, um, it was kind of beyond me and I had a little trouble coalescing them. And, uh, you know, go see the, I mean, my film Rites of Passage, if you can still find it out there on, the, on Amazon, <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> Got to be out, you know, it's amazing what's out there. It shows up in the most unusual places. You have you have written uh, that you you quit waiting tables and became a full time screenwriter screenwriter after you sold Point Break. Yeah. My, my question is, where were you waiting tables? Oh man, you know I uh, you know graduate UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. I, I got a friend of a friend who's a set designer and he's got a pad in the Malibu Colony, mm -hmm. but it's that's actually a bunch of apartments on the. Uh, on the, not on the ocean side. So I got, I got a buddy to give me a room. I got a job uh, busting tables at Alice's Restaurant, which was on the pier wow. back then. So I'm 21 years old. Cool. Uh, I'm dating a 35 year old gal. That is, it's just kind of weird to be dating older women, <laughs> you know, because I was dating yeah, college yeah, girls. Yeah. And, okay, sure, sure. And then I graduated to there. the Chart House, which is yeah. now Mastros. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I remember, you know, now I was a dishwasher and, and the the guys I'm washing dishes with are like high school kids driving BMWs their daddies gave them. And they're going, and you went to college? And then I remember, yeah, and I'm driving a Datsun 510 because I got no money. And uh, then I graduated to the salad bar, which was really where I could, I could express my art, you know. <laughs> I got to design, you know, they had sand fires. Yeah, you, you, I got to design the diagram in the Sandfire, and I just want you to know, my, I really found my artistic side at the Chart House, and I'm going there tomorrow night. <laughs> it's the best revenge, person. isn't it? You know, the first time I went to the Chart House, uh, I'd come out from New York, and I was very close friends with Dick Fleischer, the director. And Dick, I remember uh, Dick. Yeah, yeah. He said we're going to go someplace uh, nice tonight, and. Uh, you know, you you might like this, but we we booked early because we want to be there for the sunset. And we went to the chart house. I, it wasn't called the chart house. I think it was before the chart house. And I, I just was amazed. I mean, we sat. He had a, he had a table next to the window, 
and we were just watching the surf come in, watching the sunset. And it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. I wish I knew you did a salad bar because I think I got sick oh, on it. Yeah, you know, and I tried not. I tried not too many worms. I tried to keep it clean. Yeah. Um, at some point, I got to tell you the crazy Vita story, which is basically me getting my or, or you know making my first break in Hollywood. And, uh, is, is is this a good time to give this you the crazy perfect story? Time, perfect perfect time. time. This is exactly the right. It's always fun for new writers or, you know, how did you break through the yeah. sound barrier yeah. you, know, it's, you know, to become a Hollywood writer, you know? And those were glory years. And the, uh, this would have been, I got in the writer's guild 87. So yep. in the eighties, as you guys remember, this, it was a heyday. The studios were generating a lot of um, writing assignments back sure. you know you'd rewrite me i get hired to rewrite you um yada yada to my phone down and how, um, how 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 many rewriting credits do, do you have oh, well uh i've been hired by the studios have. over 60 times yeah. to um to to write screenplays and uh and guys like me made a living um you know making these six-figure paydays but the films would never get made because yeah. as you know in the business it's cheaper to say we need a rewrite than to actually make the movie. Sure. So the studio, you know, maybe a new actor comes on, attachment or new director, and they just, um, you know, but back in those days, we had, remember, there was, we had four-step deals. That's very rare now, remember? Right, so right. Oh, you'd God. be off working, you'd have a Warner's deal, and then you'd be off working for 20th Century Fox and something, they'd call you back to Warner's because they attached Catherine Bigelow or something. And then you got to do that rewrite. But then the studio doesn't really want to make it, so they... Ask another, I just get a fresh voice. And then that takes six months to, you know, find the person, another form, you know, to get the draft. That game was very profitable to all of us because we just kept rewriting each other's stuff. It was a small club yeah, of us, sure. you know. I was like in the thriller action kind of genre. And then, well, there's 15, 20 people that yeah. they would be in their regular rotation. And uh, was, was, was there a back room where you would all meet? Well, often you would meet like a WJ, WGA events. I remember yeah. one time they had yeah. a thing. Uh, they took us all to a shooting range, like Callie Curry and, you know, who'd done Thelma Louise and Bill Wisher who'd done mm -hmm. T2 and mm -hmm. me, you know, Mr. Point Break and Patriot Games. And, you know, I remember Milius was there and their teachers had to shoot guns. And it was kind of this thing like to make writers understand the proper usage of guns so we can write about them correctly in our scripts. And I'm not a gun guy. So I, I, I really it's don't kind know. of perverse in a way. I'm sorry. It's kind of perverse in a way. It was kind of perverse, but it was kind of, kind of cool. We're like, yeah, Oh yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I, I, you know, I, you know, there's it, photographers, incredible fun, incredible fun to have been there. Like but, shooting but, a gun. But, but if you consider, you know, our, our crazy culture, it's kind of you know we're going to push you to make you know, more stories about these things so that you understand them so you can make them you know th th this wasn't this wasn't uh, a drive to make gun control movies. Yeah, well, like I said, this must have been in, in the nineties. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, as, as I think of know, who, who's and, and it's a it was probably a genius marketing <laughs> idea. So, oh, here's what we're guys like Wilshire, uh, Bill Wisher carried a gun. I remember uh, uh, Arnold Copelstein, mm -hmm. uh, Copelson. The yeah. famous producer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had he brought a gun to meeting. You meet him at a restaurant, and he'd always sit with his back to the wall, facing the entrance, and he had a freaking gun. And it was like in a um, like remember that we used to have Walkmans, and they were kind yeah, of a certain yeah. size. And the case he yeah. fit a little uh, like a baby Glock in there. And I'm like, like what happened to you that you need to sit with your back against the wall and carry a gun when you're having a business lunch with me? Like, you know. When did he become Cosa Nostra? Well, you know, he's a lot of paranoia. Anyway, we've got to talk about platoon. Crazy Vita. Come on, man. Maybe, maybe making Platoon had something to do with it and the people <laughs> who made Platoon. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched the end of it. And you realize everybody freaking dies in that movie except Charlie. <laughs> Anyway, um, but I got to tell the story because it's a funny no, no, one. No, no, um, no, you know, um, I you know I had used whatever contacts I could to um, become a runner for Alan Ansberg Productions. They made that's incredible, and I used to do all this stuff to break through. Um, like 
that in those days you didn't have um you know there's no internet so you a, a show like that's kind of was shot on film then it was transferred to video right and a guy like me had to had to take all these film canisters to actually the paramount pictures lot where they had a film shipping thing that would send these film canisters to brazil or china or south america and while i was on the lot I would go around and I would um, make copies of scripts because back then, the, you know, the copy machines had no, you know, key codes or anything. Sure, sure, sure. And, uh, oh you know, it was God. really expensive for a guy oh, making yeah. 150 a week, you know, driving the truck for Alan Landsberg to go to Printland and spend $7 on a, to make a script, right? Sure. And we just had to hand this stuff out. I'm sure you guys went through the same thing. So I'd make all these copies. And then I'd go around the lot. I'd literally be handing out, I had this story about a boy and a horse. It was like the dumbest story ever, but I figured if someone stole it, then I'll make my million by suing your ass. And of course, no, it was so bad. No one wanted to steal it. But um, so if you remember back in the day, there was a thing called the WGA, Writers Guild of America, green list. And it was a piece of paper. Yeah, you remember see, I can, and it was, um, I had a list of the agencies that would take unsolicited material. Yeah. And to this day, a big agency, the CAAs or the ICMs and whatnot, you can't just send them a script and say, hey, uh, can I become a client? Because they they don't want to you to eventually sue them that you sent them the outer space movie and they did the mission to Mars. And, you know, so right, right. you have to be recommended. You have to be kind of ushered into the big agencies to be repped. Right. Yeah. But the, so there were these small agencies that would take unsolicited material. There was one called the Kimberly Agency on Western and Sixth back then when that was just crack town, baby. <laughs> the <laughs> epidemic was happening and it was nasty. And I heard a friend, you know, was uh, you know, was uh, was represented there. So I I go, it's the sixth <laughs> floor, and there I meet Crazy Vita. Vita Thomas, it was a one-man agency. It was a woman, I'm guessing, in her late 50s. And what was weird about, you know, most older women tend to cut their hair. She had hair down to her navel. And it was um, just kind of like, you're crazy. So I made her a deal. I sussed it out right away. I say, I will, let's make a deal that we pretend I'm an agent working for your agency, selling me as a client. My name is William Peter Gates Iliff. I will be Bill Gates, the agent, working for you, selling Peter Iliff. She said, oh, sure. Wow. wow. So then I got wow. that Hollywood blue book. That was the thing, you know, maybe there's a version digitally oh, yeah. now, but it was a blue book and it had the numbers of all the execs in town. And I, you know, I had to buy it. And uh, I started the premise to a story, Peter, uh, you know, and this is Bill Gates, you know, from the you know, Kimberly agency, <laughs> uh, I call on behalf of Peter Iliff, you know, it's great. You know, right, you know, and I was completely messing up and they were hanging up on me, but you start to lose, learn your salesman shtick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally, I call uh, Warner's and I get um, a, a, you know high executive story editor. You might know her because you're Warner's guys. It was Kimberly Brent. She was a lovely dark haired woman, became a dear friend, and she uh, kind of listened to my rap and she goes, "Bill, um, why don't you and Peter come in for a meeting?" <laughs> so. Bill had to get the flu and Crazy Vita joined me to get, you know, there's a gate pass, you know, oh my God, you, you know, when you're driving the lots, there's a gate pass and, you know, Warner's truly is and remains one of the most beautiful epic studios. It's, every time I'm on the lot, it's just exciting, you know, yeah. and uh, so this rush of being on the lot maybe for one of the first times and having, you know, someone directed to your parking spot. Mm -hmm. And going through the beautiful old executive building and going to your office. And, um, you know, it's a it's kind of a suite where Kimberly was. And they asked, Vita Thomas, would you like a coffee or tea? And you know what she said? She wanted a drink. <laughs> she was a Southern uh, woman. And in her Southern draw, like, I know you must have a bottle hidden here somewhere, darling. You know, she started pulling literally books off of the bookshelf looking for the bottle that might be behind and it was really embarrassing and um and it just got worse it got so bad at this meeting that kimberly brent the executive did something that they never do and you know this they never directly give the writer their phone number it always goes through the channel of the representation right oh, of course she gave her a number she said call me and the next day she got me signed at icm 
And at ICM, they gave me an article about football in Texas. And I wrote a movie called Varsity Blues. And it changed my life. So it is a great story just about the crazy shit that we do. But you kind of have to do it. Also, and, the I would say the unexpected path. Yeah, yeah. really, if 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 hey, if all right, if if you don't pull off the stunt, if you don't <clears throat> suddenly get caught in the stunt, and you have to bring her, if she doesn't show up at that meeting, yeah, you know, really, then nothing else that follows. She has been such a, uh, a ill-behaved individual. <laughs> so the so the big question that you didn't answer is: Did they ever find the bottle in the executive's office? Uh, no, man, you know, Kimberly, you know, he's probably like to twist one up every now and then, but she was, she didn't need a midday nip, you know, and, uh, I haven't seen Kimberly in years. So if Kimberly listens to this, God bless you, Kimberly. She became a friend for many years. I don't know where she is now, but, uh, you know, it's how, I'm sure you guys have very similar stories of how you broke through. And I've just heard so many great ones. Over oh, the it's, it's, you know, getting onto the mountain is, is hard. And, yeah. and it's, everyone's got their own crazy story. The trick is not getting on to the mountain. The trick is staying on the mountain. <laughs> That's the bitch. Yeah. That's the thing that will fucking kill you is yeah. the struggle to stay on the mountain. Because once, you, once you're there, man, being, not being on the mountain kind of sucks. And nobody you know, wants that. You know, of, um, I mean, we've all had great successes. And uh-huh. I just saw Gil's Valkyrie the other day and oh, always you. loved that movie. And, you know, oh, with so many you, more you both have done and you know, I've had some some luck. But we have to learn to stay out of the results. And this is a thing I've learned in sobriety. There's a lot of wisdom they try to, you know, let us lead, lead our lives with. But mm-hmm. I really live by those words, you know, and the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change I got to stay out of the results because I don't control once that screenplay, you know, I got actually screenplay pages here. Once this thing leaves my desk and you paid me for it, I'm kind of like, I got to do what you tell me, or you're going to get somebody else to do it. And uh, I might not like the results. I mean, this very year I had uh, two films come out. One was um, uh, the enforcer starring Antonio Banderas and it was one of my very best scripts. And I think that's why we got Antonio Berendash to say yes. But he shows up to set. And this first time director gave him a brand new screenplay that he'd written in two weeks. And it's kind of heartbreaking for me because uh, I'm disappointed with the movie, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, this is this is Millennium Studios. And Avi Lerner is not necessarily um, the writer's best friend, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but, hey. I made a lot of money. We remodeled our house and it's given me other opportunities and you have to learn to stay out of the results. I've had a lot of times writers have come in like Jim Cameron came in to rewrite me on point break, got no credit. That worked out pretty well for me, (laughs) you know, and, uh, and then I had um, another film come out. It's out right now. It's called poker face with, um, with Russell Crowe starring. And I'd been hired to do the script doctor gig and, um, did did, and, did he not direct uh, that? I'm sorry. Didn't he direct that, Russell Crowe? Yeah, and he yeah. uh okay. he basically fired my the director I was working for, who's a friend, and then he took over the directing. Okay. And, um, and then so now I'm script doctoring for him, and they had to start shooting like in five weeks because some tax reasons in Australia, so we didn't have a lot of time, and and um. And he took over the screenplay. It was finally like, okay, I'll I'll back off. And um, and I see this movie come out, and it's getting kind of roasted, and it's like just disappointing, you know. And I could stay out of the results. Is 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 your name in the credits as as, as the screenwriter? No, because it's a script doctor gig. All right, all right. So so they, they give you uh, at, other. At least you know, they're not credits. looking at you like 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 you're the monster. <laughs> no, I was. I was the monster, oddly, and the enforcer because um, the director was not a member of the Writers Guild who massively rewrote me. So I I retained sole credit. So when the script doesn't make a lot of sense and and then, you know, the studio will take out 20 minutes of the cut just to make it come into 90 minutes. Right. And it, now it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you have a variety article. It sprang from, 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 out, from your mind that way. I'm the worst writer ever born. And yeah, 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 again... Yeah. 
state of the results. You know, you hear from all these musicians and stars, you can't really read the press because it can be up or it can be down. And again, I just have to remind myself, I'm so grateful for this life that I have as a writer. You know, I've been married to Ruthann 33 years. We have two great kids. I got bravo, bravo. Barking right. You hear him? <laughs> no, hey, and, um, not an easy thing to do. Hey, good, that's man. another mountain. It's easy to get on, but hard to stay on. Is a long-term relationship. <clears throat> well, the reason is Friday night, date night. It's about... For uh, 40 p.m., uh, once I hang up on you guys, date night begins. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's the secret and, to my marriage. <laughs> and hey, that's that's an important thing. There's there, there's an important lesson to be taken from there. Uh, a happy a happy writer in in within the context of their life tends to be a better writer. I I find I don't write well when I'm not happy. That I I imagine you're the same way. You kind of have to get into a state of peace to uh, be able to sit down and kind of let the ideas flow. Otherwise, whatever you're upset about, you'll go in that direction, you mm -hmm. know? It it colors everything. Yeah. Um, when when left to your own devices, is there, I mean, it, it seems that <clears throat> that Goldfinger experience has, has endured. Is it uh, the male bonding relationship seems to be something that, that you gravitate to? Oh, yeah, that's, well, that's very true. It's very astute. You know, I lost my dad at eight, and uh, I have two older sisters. What's, so, um, what I what happened to your dad? Have... If, 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 if I can ask, what happened to your dad? My dad, um, during World War, World War II, he yeah. served in the, in the uh, G2 Army Intelligence, and he was on the ground in Hiroshima, after the bomb dropped, oh, they had the, the intel guys had to come in and almost be police this massively sure, sure. destroyed city. And my father, who was a healthy man, he he swam with Johnny Weismuller, who played Tarzan back in the day. So my dad was a big. I'm six foot four. My dad was six five. He was a big strapping guy. He started having his first heart attacks at 35. Died at 45 from the third heart attack. I don't have any medical records, but I got to believe he caught a dose of radiation if he was on the ground in Hiroshima for six oh, months. Sure. Right. You know, so, surely, surely. I mean, Chernobyl God bless is still these, radioactive. Uh, how, how long? Oh, I'm God. sorry? Chernobyl is still radioactive. How long after the fact? Yeah. That was a few days after, after the bombs dropped. So this was, you know, what, 45, 46. Uh, and, you know, so uh, I love my daddy. You know, he was, he loved his boy. I was the only boy. So I got a lot of attention. And so um, missing my daddy so much and being raised by a grieving mother, you know, God bless Jean, but, but you know, she, she was just never, she could never move on to another relationship. So there's a lot of um, emotional attachment to me, you know, her sure. son, <clears throat> which became kind of a burden, a lot of my life. And I developed an internal life, but made me a nice writer but I found when I got to high school, and also I was a real geek. I'm, I was six foot four. I was like 115 pounds. I, I could, I love sports, but if you try to turn, I'd fall over. I can only do sports in straight lines. I was rude. I was bullied. I was teased. And, um, but I found that a personality could overcome this stuff as I started to grow into my body and become this incredibly, you know, attractive man you see before you. And, uh, and um, so I've had kind of a double life. And I, to this day, my male friends are so important to me. You know, um, I have, I'm, I'm very grateful for the long-term relationships I have with um, male friends. And I find sobriety going to all these AA meetings. I only go to men's meetings because when you go to women's meetings, a lot of men start thinking about sex <laughs> and they don't, they get off the point. And so now I've been for about 20 years, I've been hearing uh, men being the best versions of themselves and, and talking honestly about things in their life. And, and I've met some really wonderful new friends in sobriety. And uh, that becomes a real bro out, you know, going to the gym to weight, lift weights becomes a bro out for me, mm -hmm. cracking jokes with the trainers. And, and uh, I find I need that other part of my life to isolate and sit down and do what we do, you know. What yeah. is, what's the the best film you can think of about male relationships in this way that, that you have not written? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. God, that's I don't think I have a quick answer for that. No, hey, hey, hey you know, it, it, it's it's just one of those things. I, I, but hey, I'm just reacting to the I, moment. I, I, now I want to know, you know, you know where buddy cop movies. I mean, maybe that's why I loved you know Forty Eight Hours when it came out. You know, mm-hmm. which you know reviewed was kind of sure. sure. maybe didn't get great reviews, but I mean, it's a I think it's a classic. Um, and then you know there was that whole genre of buddy cop movies, and you know, so that really attracted me you know mm-hmm. because uh i like that kind of s- stupid banter <laughs> don't we all <laughs> yeah, i i came into this world a groucho marx fan come on man I'm... <laughs> so no so what does anything well it must be something that remains to be said in in a in a movie about the male relationship that hasn't been said yet what's well what remains I, to be said? I thought of another funny story that is a, is a guy thing yeah. and uh and i notice in our business um sometimes you got to be a little bit ferocious with other men especially if you're in a position as a writer or directing you know we've all seen directors they get a kind of alpha star in their set and they, they somehow behave in a manner that's weak and they lose that actor. That mm-hmm. actor just freaking gives them a hard time the entire play, right? Mm-hmm. We've all seen this. Um, I had an experience, uh, having seen this a lot, I had an experience on this film Under Suspicion in uh, you know, 2000, the year 2000 or so. Starred Gene Hackman, starred Morgan Freeman, and my again, my dear friend Stephen Hopkins is directing this. And it was uh, a lot of the film was about, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman, the cop sitting down at his police desk, interviewing suspect Gene Hackman. And so you had to Stephen Hawkins had to figure out a bunch of camera moves to make something that's so dry cinematically be cool. So for three weeks before production started, they built a duplicate set and I would go to work for the three of the happiest weeks of my life in Puerto Rico to the set would be Stephen Hopkins. Morgan Freeman, Gene Hackman, and me, and sometimes Thomas Jane would come in, or sometimes Monica Bellucci, who at that time was rated the fourth most beautiful woman in the world, and she's a lovely person. And uh, we would just uh, read the script. Now, one time, Gene Hackman, I mean, would you say he's one of the top five actors on the planet? Is he? Uh, sure. I mean, wow, what a body of work. Right. I mean, like, so he's kind of the man, as is Morgan, and he's stumbling over one of my lines. And this was a very like writer heavy script, you know, like, and, uh, and I, I finally did the thing you're not supposed to do as a writer. I, 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 it goes like this. And I gave him a line reading and Hackman stood up and he started coming at me and I, I'm going, holy shit. He's, he's coming over to give me, he's going to punch me. And I, you know how the amygdala starts to overprocess. Fight or flight, fight or flight. So this in that moment, as my amygdala is overprocessing and he's coming over to punch me in the face, I'm thinking mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom, you know, like you know, the, you know, the animals have to show power. And I'm thinking of a as your life flashes before your eyes on Hackman who Apparently, this young man had lived with Dustin Hoffman in New York City. And, and yeah. Dustin talked about how Hackman would go out. Hackman was not a tall man. And he'd go to bars and pick fights with tall guys and punch them in the face. And I'd also heard that Hackman lied about his age to get into the Marine Corps early. So I realized I got to go fuel full, you know, a mutual Omaha's world. <laughs> Omaha's, I got to go full animal kingdom yeah, with yeah. this guy. And I go, God damn it, Gene, how much longer do I got to listen to you fuck up my line? And he stopped dead in his tracks. And that night, he uh, he invited me to dinner. And uh, and we became really good friends. And the mm-hmm. evidence of that was, you know, uh, this thing went to con. It was my only time going on the, on the red carpet. And when you have a, a film with the red carpet, you party at the Majestic Hotel, which is across the street from the theater that will screen and where the red carpet is. And at the end of this lovely party, all the men are dressed with the women are, Ruth Ann looks, my wife looks so beautiful that night, but she had to go to the bathroom. And so we kind of missed the call because at the back of Majestic is a car loading dock where 20 identical Mercedes pull up and everybody from the party gets in one. 
just to just across the street to be, get out for the red carpet where the paparazzi is going to be. And by the time Ruth Ann's back from the bathroom, every car is full and no one's opening their door to let us in. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm, we're going to miss the red carpet. And, and the first car, and there's 20 cars. So the first car, the door opens, it's Hackman. Hey, Iliff, Ruth Ann, come on up. And he had his wife sit on his lap and Ruth Ann sat at my lap. And I was able to get out of the car next to Gene Hackman for the premiere of my film. Wow. All because I told him, stop fucking up my line, you asshole. <laughs> um, it's a great story, but it's also very true about alpha males in our business. And sometimes you have to show some alpha because mm. guys kind of do this. We kind of fight and then we forget that fight and we bro out. You know, I think sometimes women might resist the actual fight and they, mm. you know, um, but and that's how guys are. And mm, um, mm. I don't like to fight, but I find there's a little bit of bull. I, I was bullied as a kid. So I tend to have more of a little hair trigger because I have a lot of trauma for being bullied as a kid. And, uh, and now that I'm six foot four and 220, I lift weights and, and uh, don't fuck with me. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've had a few experiences like that as well. It, it's kind of interesting because when it happens, you sort of, after the fact, you sort of think of psychologically, what was I thinking? What were they thinking? And why did I let it get to where it got to? Yeah. Because they have done it differently. And usually the answer is no, you couldn't have done it differently. And, you know, what you did, you did. And it sort of worked out. Um, well, you, oh, you always had a way about you, Gil. And, and when I directed that crypt, you know, I was just such a rookie, my first time directing, and it was all going haywire. And, and you just had a way of always remaining articulate. You'd be, you had some real problems to deal with with my shoot, but you never <laughs> lost your cool. <laughs> go back to that a little bit. When, when, what brought you in? Let's talk a little bit about how you got to Tales from the Crypt, and then we can talk about you making that crypt. Well, um, if you remember Dick Donner, God bless Dick Donner. I think yeah. we all loved Dick Donner, you know, the great director. You know, I was part of that little club of screenwriters at that time that was rewriting a Donner project. Like right. me, Gregory Wyden. Wyden had done yep. what? Uh, uh, Backdraft. Back, thank you. Backdraft and Highlander. So yep. he was a hot skin. So he was doing one and, you know, and I'd had some hits. And um, so we were part of that club. And um, <laughs> I think Greg and I realized if Dick kept wanting more free rewrites, so we kind of, well, okay, we'll give you the free rewrite if you let us write and direct a crypt. And we kind of, both of us kind of blackmailed him into giving <laughs> us this opportunity because the crypt was a who's who of Hollywood. I mean, it was amazing, your show. I mean, the yeah. the, the talent and the directors, and uh, it was a combination of great veterans and kind of uh, hot up-and-comers. You know, so, so for, those, really for, those, for those listening, for those listening, just to interrupt one second, for those listening who are trying to get in or are just entering in the business, there, there, there is room for blackmail <laughs> in the right way. And there is room for being, you know, uh, a bully in the right spirit. In the right and spirit. Sometimes they, 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 it winds up being a positive results. Anyway, go back, uh, go back. As writers, they always want free work. And, you know, um, okay, you don't want to put it down in a contract or actually give me give me a, a check, but what else can we get? And it's an important, you know, it's in any business, you got to leverage yourself. So I leveraged my way in and I found myself in a room sitting across you two guys. And <laughs> I think I had some kind of terrible ideas. And I remember it was you, Al. I remember uh -oh. you had this incredible idea you said there is this french film called an occurrence at Al creek bridge and you said sure. have you seen this and you sort of explained the beauty of this little short film can you peter do a version of this hmm. and uh i mean it became a really cool idea you know it was a very cool show do you well, remember that that was your I, idea part of you know i was written i was ripping off ambrose bierce and yeah, I mean, it, it's just it, it's just a classic story structure. Hey, man, just steal from the very best. Yes. Really, who's going to know? Uh, really, that's you know the the job was to help you get your work done. Yeah, you're the producer. How, you, you, however, you however we get that done, 
that was the assignment and it helped you get your work done. You helped the blackmailer, you know, get, uh, you know, uh, hey, but, <laughs> uh, how did you Now that was your first time directing? Well, it was fun, but it was interesting to realize all the little tricks that you need to acquire and um, the things that come along and the funniest story of our crypt and Gil and I have laughed at it so many times. This thing starred a beautiful John Stamos, who was such a beautiful young man at this point. He's, he's you know, he's been Johnny and a, and, and a lovely person, kind too. of a mob hitman. And his older woman mob boss gal was Eileen Brennan. Right. And what a great piece of casting because she was kind of getting older and kind of had, she was, you know, looked kind of like nasty in a very cool crypt way. Mm -hmm. but, you know, she had the furs on and the pearls. Yeah. And there was a scene where she catch where Eileen Brennan catches Johnny Stamos, you know, banging Kate Vernon and she's pissed. And the script calls for her to say a mouthful of lines and then slip them across the face. Well, Eileen getting along in years was stumbling over the mouthful of dialogue and out of frustration, she'd slap him anyway. <laughs> we go, no, no, cut, cut, cut. And we do it, you know, and Gil's like, well, you know, do take two. And then, you know, she stumbled, slap, okay, take three. And and um, Byron takes six. St Gil's like losing his mind. We don't have the <laughs> shot. Stamos, who's the nice man and remains the nicest man, pulls me aside yeah. and goes, Peter, I, you know, uh, I'm just getting red. Like I, I'm getting, like, like I'm, I'm getting swollen. And he said it really nicely. And we had to kind of like, I was, I was uh, not a, prepared how to handle an actress that couldn't handle our lines. It was striking the other actors. So we had to do cue cards. I remember quickly, you, you have some PAs got cue cards and we're holding them up. And, and the funny thing is, I remember I watched this recently and we basically cut out everything she said and she just slaps the guy. So <laughs> if I just read the dialogue, it would have been fine. Never mind your damn dialogue. <laughs> and I should have known that if I had, you know, I should have known that, you know, we don't need the dialogue. Well, it's right. better. It's better. We cut out the dialogue than the slap because otherwise Thamos would be looking at it going, they cut out the slap. I almost had to go to surgery for this and they cut it out. <laughs> so it was um you know things like that would throw me and then also um you know when you direct enough you start to really see you're thinking in cuts you know right you're you're because you've been in the edit room and you realize it's just a bunch of snippets and it's all these cuts and your your first time in the editing room was was that must have been a, a revelation because that's really where it happened tricks and and to really do see it it affected my writing because uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's little, it's it's just shots, right? It's yeah. it's a yeah. this shot, this shot, yeah. and it's all yeah. being you know put together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it and all of a sudden, I stopped writing these long paragraphs that screenwriters do. I started writing little um, two line paragraphs because that was essentially it was a shot and a yeah. space, and then a two line. And so right. you never say wide angle or you know uh, this angle. You just kind of like without telling the director because that's insulting to tell a director what lens to use or where to put the, but little blurbs were essentially the shots and also it started to make my writing more time accurate because younger writers will write a paragraph you know uh the allied forces invade normandy beach <laughs> and it's a paragraph that would take do that right, do right? That. so you start to learn that when you know you want that moment where there's a look between you and I, because something has happened, you make that a separate paragraph and let that look play in, in page time. So it truly is a page per minute. And when you, you know, get your screenplay done, it's a little more accurate because I found my first cuts of movies were becoming three hours when it's supposed to be, you know, a hundred minutes because yeah. I wasn't writing correct page length. Do You know, if, if we look at the screenplay format itself, it's, it's really kind of dated. It, it's really, it's something that only the Directors Guild of America could love. It, it's really the the cut to internal, cut to external. You know, it, it's like proscenium arch, proscenium arch, proscenium arch, and that's not how the medium works at all anymore. Yeah, I I, I stopped using cut tos a long time ago because you add them up, that's four pages. Yeah, and and it doesn't reflect the reality of of of, yeah. of how. I wonder, does the screenplay format itself need a huge rethink in 
in, in an age that that where you can jump cut? Well, that's interesting. Um, what I've noticed, I mean, that's a good question. But I think as we get older, we start to, um, you know, our our formatting, our our, our our just the way we put it down evolves. Oh God! And I read, and there's Gosh. no fast rule of how a writer can express their screenplay language as we read other scripts. We just have to be consistent within the world of our particular screen. Agree. Yeah, Agree. You know, and consistent and, uh, within the world that we're creating. Yeah. And it's this uh, beauty of terseness. You know, you, I'm sure we've all tried to write our novel and it's like such a chore for screenwriters because now it's an opposite kind of thing. You have you to know? find your inner Hemingway. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, what I've found about screenwriting that's been helpful as I've gotten older is, and I'm sure you have too, is uh, the outlining process. You know, I, I'm still, Ooh, yes. these knuckleheads oh, who yeah. sit at the coffee shop and page yeah. one and they, they're off and, and oh, then they God. ask us to read these things. And by the way, when you ask us to read a script, I got to spend two hours to read it. I got to spend an hour to think about it. I got to spend another hour to take you to lunch and tell you it sucks. And then call it five hours. It's a big ask, you know, oh, and, and it's not fun. Oh man! You know, oh, man. so uh, please, new writers, do what we do. Um, we spend perhaps half the time that uh, you know, if it's three months to write a script, I'm spending six weeks outlining this thing. Oh, you know, gosh. and and every scene yeah. becomes something you write in Microsoft Word or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of programs to do this, but and then. But he says every word is true. That is exactly how you have to do it. If you, you do it in a way, otherwise it's going to take long. You're going to fuck it up. You know, you're wasting your time. And then that well, outline, and then, and then the outline gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger as as it gets clearer in your mind oh, and you're putting it down. Man. So that when the outline is complete and now you're ready to write the script, we always say when we're writing something, it almost writes itself because we've yes. spent so much yeah, time yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it, with these people. That's where we invest all the 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 emotional underpinning is all there in 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 the narrative form, and then the trick is to to get the emotions in in this rather spare format of a screenplay. Well, you know, we I find with the newer writers, uh, they're very defensive about notes, right? And yeah. you and I, and you know, the three of us have learned you just cannot be defensive, or else you will no longer be writing for that company. Yeah. And uh, and also, got it. You know, try it. Just write it that way. But the point I'm making, an outline is easier to make changes because it's not the art form yet. Oh sure. yeah. Oh yeah. You yeah. don't really care. Like, okay, let's move the scene around here. Let's try this. It's not art yet. And um, and you want all the feedback. You want to be able to give somebody a 30 page outline for a, a script and have them give you real notes because you because you're not upset about it. No, yeah. you know, and, and and sometimes what 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 young writers have to understand is <clears throat> sometimes the person giving you the note they they might have a great note, but they're not articulating their point just yes. so. And sometimes that's really the where the communication breaks down. They really have a they're seeing some something that you're not seeing that you yes. need to see, and they're mm -hmm. just not articulating what it is the best that they can. And yeah, that, that, that's something that happens. we've all experienced in these, back in the day, these power studio meetings, you know, these executives, you know, they have to read so many scripts a night, you know, then they have to meet with you in front of a big group and they got to have something to say and they have flagged things that don't work and you can't expect them to have this brilliant solution, but you have to, as you're saying, you have to, you have to listen to the flag and, and, and maybe if you're, you know, obviously a, hopefully a smart, quick-witted person, you like, in the room, well, I really respect what you're saying. Can we try it this way? Yes. Hey, just hear that's their the flag. If, if you acknowledge their flag, that's the most important thing. First of all, now they're smart because they saw something and yes. you see that they saw it. So right off the bat, uh, so long as you don't reject, you know, you don't. Yeah, yeah. you can probably make them your ally. In that's exactly what happens, world. isn't it? You yeah. you turn them to uh, instead of trying to destroy your script, they now become protectors. Yeah. And the outline process means you know they're the company. They get you. They're the only you know, person. The company, in the, room the producers, everybody, the actors are getting a script that they kind of expected because they had input into it. And, yeah. and um, it's just, I mean, I've had experiences, and I'm sure where I've been paid hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to write a screenplay, and I turn it in, and 
because back in the day, there's no outlines and they would hate it. And they would never, you would never hear from the studio. You would just hear from your agent. You're fired. And oh my God, you know, and think of their thing. They, you know, they had a meeting four or five months ago or three months ago and they, they've forgotten what that meeting was. They, they've kind of forgot what the script was going to be. And yeah. uh, the outline process has changed all that. And it's kind of now part of all the contracts that we sign when we're it's work for hire you know they they pretty much and there's a writer's guild you know minimum wage for an outline or a treatment and um it's part of the writing process so if you're trying to break in you got to do what we do outlines and you're right gil when you said then the script writes itself i you can write a screenplay in two and a half weeks after you have that kind of outline, it writes itself. Yeah. And it's beautiful. So all the energy, all the effort, all the thinking, all the working out of the everything that's happening always happens for us in the outline form. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. we do the outline and we do the outline and we notice the outline starts at five pages, then it's seven, then it's 10, then it's 15, then it's 20 because you're adding me to, you know, yeah. me on the bones. A voice pattern for a character. Yeah. Ooh. And all of a sudden it's creating itself. The other thing that you said is so true is that. You know, when you when whether it's an executive or or a financier or somebody that's helping uh, that can help make the, the the your script the movie is yeah get them on your side acknowledge what they've said to you even if even if it's not exactly what you believe in or, or trust acknowledge it and then show them tell them how you can twist what you've done into what something that they're suggesting but is not exactly what you have and it's not exactly what they have and it gives them an opportunity to say. Oh yeah, I think that's even better. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And oftentimes it is better. I mean, it's just yeah. so arrogant for us to think that we're such geniuses. Yeah. You know, uh, part of my secret success is that I know I'm not a genius. I know I need all the help I can get. I need to work right. with smart people who make me better. And I need to be nice. And I need to be cooperative and show an attitude of um, wanting your feedback. Mm, indeed. That, that's yeah, how I mean, you more, more so than any other industry, I think. Yeah. The, the one thing I've learned in this one is it's all about collaboration. I can't make a movie by myself. You can't make a movie by yourself. The DP can't. The financier yeah. can't. It's a collaboration. And it's only as good as, as, as the collaboration is good. I agree. And I think that's what I finally learned about directing is it's really a director simply uh, can um, articulate a vision. Yeah. And once that vision is articulated and all departments are on board with that vision, the magic happens. Yeah. And then their own special gifts show themselves as they vision and they bring new things to it you didn't imagine. Indeed. The sun um, becomes greater than than the parts and, and yeah. damn if it ain't movie magic. Uh this has been a wonderful hour of talking to you. I, I I wanted to ask you one last thing, but before we we let you go, Peter, and that's uh Trump's America. Trump's America. About I love that. that yeah. I am, um, you know, uh, homeless in Los Angeles. So uh, it's actually, I'm not a Trump fan. I, I'll just say, I think Donald Trump is pretty much the worst human being that God ever created. Um, but um, so it's a, it's a story of a homeless guy named yeah. Frank who's living in the uh, Venice Beach Carnival Walk. He's a, he's, he's a beach homeless and, uh, but it's too competitive there with all the panhandlers. So he goes to Beverly Hills to panhandle more money, but the cops don't like it. So they dump him on Skid Row. Like I'm not Skid Row homeless. I'm beachfront homeless. And the plot darkens <laughs> and uh, it becomes a commentary on the homeless crisis in Los Angeles and, yeah. um, and Skid Row. And this practice that was happening some years ago of dumping people, especially uh, mentally ill people on Skid Row. And uh, and uh, we actually shot there, and uh, I'm very proud of the film. It, it uh, won a couple of festivals. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. That's uh, I'm really ask you fun. And I would say, my one last thing I would say, if, if you're a young person getting this business, maybe you shouldn't just think of yourself as a writer. Maybe you think of yourself as a writer director, which kind of is the best job in the world. And you do that by making a short film. And my mistake was Trump's America is like 23 minutes long. You need these to be about less than 10 minutes so they can show in festivals of short films mm. in these hour blocks they have. Right. Mine was kind of too long. It, it, it was kind of hogging the whole hour. And um, and this is a great way to meet people 
and to call on favors with your buddies and friends. And God knows you can shoot it in your iPhone and cut it in your Mac. I mean, mm -hmm. to make a, sh you're all doing TikTok videos. Why don't you yeah, make yeah. a little film yeah. and, and make, make it eight minutes and you can be in these festivals and you're going to meet so many people and the world is yours. And that would be my advice to uh, young people. And I had and, a blast doing Trump's America. It's a good film. Oh, it, uh, I, wh where can we see it? Where, where can we find it? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, you can probably find it on um, on Amazon Prime. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, uh, I'm going to go look for it. Uh, what a what a wonderful to, to reconnect. This was this was so much fun. I got. Well, I don't know why we waited. Long time, my friend. Yeah, long time. You look good, man. You look. You got that smile. You haven't lost a smile, man. Oh, hey, you know, there's a whole podcast to explain where this smile came from. <laughs> and I'm happy to say uh, I haven't spoken to you, but Gil and I have remained, uh, I like to think, good friends over the years. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I am so grateful for you guys helping with um, the Tales of the Crypt back in 93. And I got into the director's guild. I'm still a, member of the, a proud member of the DGA because of you guys. And uh I we're, 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 glad and, we, we're glad we can help you out, Pete. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool because of you guys, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you, everyone, for, for, for listening as usual. And uh, we will see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrific Crypt content. Oh, 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 oh,